thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us now. Help us to have open hearts, open minds, open eyes and ears. We want to receive what you want to say to us and not just absorb it, but be transformed by it. So please uh, guide us and lead us, God, in the paths of truth. Help us to hear your voice tonight. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. So tonight we find ourselves in the book of John. We're doing an overview through the Bible, uh, shooting for a book a week, plus or minus some change. And so we're in John. Uh, you know, we've kind of been emphasizing it throughout the year, but as we get farther into the New Testament, we're just going to have to emphasize it more and more. And that is we are not unpacking the entire book of John tonight. We are doing an overview of the book of John. There is no... Uh, way that is even remotely possible to unpack the entirety of the Gospel of John in 35 or 45 or an hour and five minutes. It just doesn't happen. And uh, so we're overviewing, and the goal is that hopefully what you absorb here is then down the road as you're studying the book of John, there are things that you can glean and remember and say, hey, wait a second. You know, maybe this helps understand it a little better or unpack it a little more. And, uh, and so that's, that's our hope. And so what we're doing on Wednesday nights exists as an addition to what should be happening in your life privately. Right? You've got to be coming into the Word, coming to the Lord and to His Word on your own time. Uh, or else you will totally miss out on so much of what the Lord wants to have for you. So much of how the Lord wants to speak to you. And so tonight, we are doing an overview of the book of John. So John, the Gospel of John, we said, uh, you know, the, the first three books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what's known as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is just a big fancy word. It means seen together. It means the three of them collectively are very similar in style. They're very similar in format. And they give a, just a very kind of collective picture of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is different, not because it's offering us a contradictory picture, but because John, as he's writing this, is saying, hey, basically, the other three guys did a great job already of unpacking certain truths about who Jesus is. And so I want to just sort of expand on that thought. He's not countering what the other three writers have said. He's expanding on it. So John is uh, probably the last book ever written in the New Testament, uh, probably somewhere around 90 A.D., some people say 80, 80. Some people say 95. There's, there's a little bit of argument. Uh, people who want to say that basically you can't trust the Bible love to stick it somewhere in 115, 130 AD and say, well, John couldn't have written it because he would have been dead by then. But if you're looking at it honestly, probably somewhere around 90 AD, 85 AD is a good range. And so it's, as, it's much later in John's life. It's much later in the history of the church. And so what John is doing is he's writing this. At this point, almost the entire New Testament has been written. So John's saying, before I die, as an eyewitness of Christ, as a disciple of Jesus, and really as the last one alive, there's some things that I want to get written down so that the world remembers them. There's things I want to remind people about in the person and the nature of Jesus Christ. And so he actually gives us a... Uh, a sort of a preface, but he sticks it at the end. He tells us why he wrote the book. So if you have a Bible and you want to flip to John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John says, Jesus did a lot of other miracles that I'm not writing about. This is not, my goal is not to give a point by point of every single thing that Jesus did. It's not the goal of the book of John. What's the goal? These things that John has written are so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So he wants you to believe and then have an act that follows that belief. And, and really, you think about it, this is one of the most fundamental attacks against Christianity that John is trying to address here, is, is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? Is he God himself? And if that's true, then everything we do hinges around that. If that's not true, then really, what do we have? What, are, what is what we call the New Testament? It's what you could call wisdom literature. It's what you could call uh, moral teaching. But it's not the Word of God. If Jesus is not the Christ, then there is no reason to base your life off of this, right? There's maybe some points you could glean or whatever. But John is saying, no, no, let's get this. I'm writing this so that you'll understand Jesus is the Christ. That's the single linchpin that every world religion makes or breaks on. Every other religion is happy to say Jesus was either a nice teacher, or he was a prophet, or he was a good man, or he was a guru. But what separates those who believe in Jesus Christ from those who don't is those of us who are willing to say, no, 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 he's the Christ, the Son of God. And so John is writing that to us. He's saying, I want you to understand that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is another word for the Messiah. I want you to understand Jesus is the one who saves. He is the, he is what everything is going to hinge on for your salvation. And so that's really what the whole book is going to do. That's what the whole book is designed to do. And so, um, so John basically divides the book up. He, did, he structures it a little differently than the other Gospels, where instead of giving us sort of, you know, birth of ministry, ministry, uh, birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus, he gives us basically seven miracles of Jesus, and he, then he gives us these seven statements that Jesus made, these seven declarations. Sometimes they're called the seven I am statements, where Jesus said, I am this, or I am this. And Jesus is revealing to us by his own declaration who he is. And John says, I want to make sure that you understand this is who Jesus said he is. Because people love to say, well, Jesus never claimed divinity. Jesus never, you know, did whatever. No, no, no. John wants us to be very clear He's writing so that we'll understand that Jesus is the Christ. And so one of the ways he does that throughout the book, before we start really diving in, is John cannot let go of the word sent. If you want to summarize the book of John in one word, it's the word sent. Because Jesus, throughout the book of John, keeps talking. He will not stop talking about, I have been sent, just like the Father sent me. I am sent. The Father has sent me. Just as the Father sent me, so I'm going to send you. He will not stop talking about the fact that he has been sent to earth. That is his purpose. Because Christianity differs from every other religion in the world. All right? Every religion in the world, except for Christianity, has the idea that if you can work hard enough or work long enough, or attain a certain state of enlightenment, or nirvana, or whatever else it is, if you can be a good enough person, you can ascend to a point of either heaven, or inner peace, or something, you know, like that. 
Christianity stands apart from all the other religions in the world and it says, no, you actually can't. You are actually completely incapable of ascending towards anything remotely close to righteousness. So the difference is God comes down. Every other religion teaches that man goes up. Christianity teaches that God came down. And so Jesus is reminding us over and over again by his statements in the book of John, I was sent, I have come down, I am here not because of your righteousness, but because of your wickedness. Because you are so wicked that there is absolutely no way for you to ascend. All right, so that's really the whole message of John, is that Jesus has come down to demonstrate that he is the Christ, to demonstrate that he's the Messiah. He has humbled himself, he has stooped low enough to become a human being. And so what we're going to do tonight, because we're not going to be able to unpack all of the Gospel of John, is I want us to uh, try and look at these seven statements that Jesus made, these seven I am statements. And, you know, we've, we've unpacked uh, a good bit of the miracles and the prophecies and the teachings of Jesus throughout the other three Gospels as we've been doing an overview. So tonight, as we're looking at the, the book of John and how it stands with the rest of Scripture, but also how it stands distinct as, as a book that is worth studying you know, on its own, but also as a part of Scripture, I want us to look at these seven statements that Jesus makes about himself. And I think it's really helpful for us to, to read these and then to digest these. Because they're all very short statements. Most of them are five or six words. And if you're not careful, you can just read them and keep going. And all of a sudden, you've totally missed the whole point. So these have a weight to them that I think we need to just kind of pause and unpack. So, um... If you'd go to chapter 6, verse 35, this is Jesus' first I am statement. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, let's put this in context. When is this happening in Jesus' ministry? This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Right after Jesus demonstrated an incredible miracle where he fed all these people, he then leaves to go to another town to minister, and people say, you know what, we've got, this is great. We've got free food, we've got great teaching, you know, this is like everything we'd ever want. Let's go get Jesus and make him a king. Let's make him a political leader. Let's rally behind him. And Jesus is saying, guys, you're not following me because I'm the Christ. You're following me because you got a free meal. You're following me because you want some sort of temporary satisfaction out of following me. So you got to understand, I am the bread of life. The people wanted physical bread. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm here to offer you so much more than that. I'm here to offer you spiritual bread, spiritual nourishment. And as we look at this, you know, we want to say, when we're looking at the scriptures, we want to say, what does it say? What does it mean? And then what does it mean to me? How does it apply to my life? So you can look at this and say, okay, so Jesus is the bread of life. What does that say? It says, he's the bread of life. What does it mean? Well, it means in essence that he's saying your fulfillment in Jesus is an eternal sort of a thing. He is your sustenance and he's, he's what's going to sustain you and keep you going more so than, than physical nourishment. But what does it mean to me? Well, what does it mean? What do you do with bread? You eat it. What do you, how, how often do we eat? Most of us eat uh, three times a day plus snacks, right? Some of us can get up to six or seven meals a day if we're really ambitious. And uh, 
And why? Because it tastes good. Well, sometimes because it's nourishing. Yeah. And also because our body actually sends us signals that says you should put some more food in your mouth right now. Right? Your brain sends a signal to your hand that says reach out, pick up that object, and shove it in your mouth. Okay? Your body just knows intuitively, I need this. And you don't eat one loaf of bread per month because your body sends you these very nice, loud, clear signals saying, let's do this a little more frequently. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. So yes, he's implying that he's our eternal sustenance and all that, but if you're going to unpack that, if you want life on an eternal level in the way that you want life on a physical level, how often should you be absorbing what Jesus wants to say to you? How often should we be partaking in fellowship with the Lord? Should we be coming into the presence of God? Right? Now, I don't think, you know, I don't know that any of us, uh, if we're honest, can routinely say we are in the presence of God as much as we are in the presence of food. I mean, we live in America where food is, truthfully, it's everywhere, right? We also live in the digital age where the Word of God is everywhere. You have incredible access. You have more access to study the Word of God and know the Word of God than any other generation in history. And frankly, sometimes we are so busy that we miss that. So he's the bread of life. And with that, it's a statement, but it's also, in a sense, a responsibility that he's handing off. Because if he's the bread of life, then we have a responsibility to live as though he's the bread of life. So in chapter 8, we get another I am statement from Jesus. In chapter 8, verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Now again, we need to put this in context. Where is it at in the book of John? Where is John putting this statement? Well, he's putting it right before an important event and right after an important event. The right before, or sorry, the right after, he's putting it right after the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery to Jesus and they have no interest in justice. They're interested in trying to trap Jesus. They say, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. What, the, the law of Moses says we ought to stone her. What do you think we ought to do? And they're trying to set Jesus up with some whole legal, theological trap. And Jesus says, you know, whichever one of you is without sin can throw the first stone. So that's what comes right before this. Right after this, Jesus is going to heal a man born blind. And this man is going to see for the first time in his life. He's not a guy who was blinded in an accident. This is a man who was born blind. And Jesus is going to heal him and give him sight. So what's the context? Well, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. What does light do? Light does two things. Well, it actually does a lot of things. You can unpack, I'm sure there are pastors who have done a whole series on light and all of its physical ramifications and how it applies to our walk with the Lord. But for tonight's purposes, it does two things. Okay, light exposes defects. Jesus said, whoever's without sin can cast the first stone. And then one by one, all of this woman's accusers walked off without throwing a rock. Why? in part because they were reminded of their own sin. They were in the presence of the, light of, the, of the light of the world. They were in the presence of God, and they're brought to an awareness of their own blemishes. Light reveals blemishes. If there's a scratch on your dining room table, and you twist the light the right way, you can't see it. You bring the light the right way, and it's the most noticeable feature in your whole house, right? Light is powerful 
at different angles at showing up shadows and highlights and surfaces and textures in ways that the human eye, like, we still, you know, it's just really crazy. But what else does light do? It shows us the path, right? When we get, when we get done tonight, we're going to walk out to the parking lot. How are we going to do it? Well, we're just going to walk. Why? Because we have light. You have light to get out of this room. You have light to go down the hallway. You have light to see which car is yours in the parking lot. You have light to actually see down the road. Hopefully you have headlights if it's dark by the time you get out. So you have light to actually not hit a deer on your way back. Light, so light exposes the flaws, but it also lights up the path. It shows us here's the way to go. So if you're in the presence of God, what's going to happen? You're going to be aware of your own flaws. To draw closer to the Lord is to come to a greater awareness of your own sinfulness. But it's also to come closer to an awareness of the obstacles, of the pitfalls, and of the straight path that we're called to walk on. So Jesus is the bread of life, and he's the light of the world. In chapter 10, we get two different I am statements from Jesus, pretty back to back. Um, and in the context, he's talking to these Pharisees after he heals the man who was born blind. They're getting in this whole debate with Jesus about, well, you know, you're not spiritual enough to heal a man because you healed him on the Sabbath and that's inappropriate because of whatever this stuff. And they're trying to get in this whole religious debate over the fact that Jesus helped a man who was born blind. And Jesus, uh, basically, he's, he's going at it with them. And they say, you're acting like we're blind. And he goes, well, if you're blind, you wouldn't have sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. He's saying, guys, the fact that you think you know what is going on is actually proof that you don't. And with that, he then launches into chapter 10. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, in verse 1, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. So Jesus then starts to go down this uh, parable, metaphor, analogy of a shepherd and his sheep. And he says, okay, the person who doesn't come in by the door is a thief and a robber. Now, in the ancient world, specifically in Israel, um, they didn't have barbed wire. They didn't have fencing. They didn't have uh, pasture land in the way that we understand it in the U.S. All right? So you take your sheep out to graze during the day, and at night you'd have to bring them in to protect them. And so they would build these stone enclosures with one doorway in and out. And it was narrow enough that the sheep could pass through one at a time, and then the shepherd could lay down, spend the night in the doorway, and the sheep couldn't get out, and no wolves or robbers or whatever else could get in without going over the shepherd. The shepherd became the door. And so he says, you know what? You guys are acting like you're leaders of Israel. Here's the deal. If you come in through the door, that's great. If you're trying to come in some circuitous, you know, work around the edges kind of a deal, you're just a thief. You're actually ripping off, you're endangering the sheep. So if the sheep are the people of God, and Jesus is saying, if you're not coming through the doorway that God has provided, then you are not actually, you're either a highly stupid sheep trying to get out, which happens, sheep are idiots, or you're a predator or a thief. And so in chapter 7, and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus says, you need to understand to these religious leaders, I am both what protects the sheep from wandering out and what protects the sheep from darkness coming in. I stand in the gap for the sheep. And so 
He's saying, I am the protection. I am the defense of the sheep. Now, it connects with Psalm 23, where David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so we understand throughout scriptures that sheep is really a reference to the people of God, which isn't really a compliment from God. Don't take it personal. Sheep are uh, the most pathetic, brainless animals uh, that you'll come across. They just, they lack the basic function of comprehension, right? There's some great videos out there of sheep doing stupid things, and they're pretty funny because sheep are clueless. Um, so it's not a compliment to us, but the Lord is making a point because truthfully, we're not exactly, uh, you know, Superman when it comes to protecting ourselves, when it comes to standing firm, when it comes to not walking in sin. We are awful at walking out into stupid situations. And we're also incredibly vulnerable if evil wants to come and attack us, apart from Jesus standing in the gap. So Jesus says, I'm the protection. And then he says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. A good shepherd, and especially if you go back to Psalm 23 and unpack what that would have meant for the Israelite people, and what it, you know, if you look at shepherds and then draw comparisons between what Jesus is saying when he's describing this, He's saying, I take care of you, I protect you, I feed you, I guard you, I will discipline you if I need to, I will make sure that you have everything you need, and if necessary, I will lay down my life for you. You are mine. Jesus is making a claim of ownership, he's also making a claim of authority. He's not just saying, I'm the boss. He's saying, I am in the position of authority, but I am choosing to exercise that authority by devoting all of my effort to helping you to helping you grow, to helping you learn, to helping you become what you were created to be. And so that's what Jesus is. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. In chapter 11, we get the story of Jesus raising a Lazarus from the dead. And it's a famous story. Uh, Jesus had a friend named Lazarus. Lazarus got sick. His sisters sent to Jesus and said, hey, Lazarus is dying. Jesus, you can heal him. And Jesus just parks. He doesn't move for a few days until he knows for sure that Lazarus is dead. And then he gets up and goes to town. And and it feels kind of weird, but it's because he wants to demonstrate the fullness of the statement he's going to make here. And, And bear in mind, in the Old Testament, we're told that if a prophet makes a declaration, if somebody gives a prophecy and you're trying to gauge, is this person a real prophet or not? Well, then the test is there needs to be a short-term prophecy to accompany it. Because anybody can stand up and say what's going to happen in a thousand years. Because in a thousand years, none of us will be around to gauge whether or not they were legitimate or not. But if I say, here's what's going to happen next week, or here's what's going to happen before you go to bed, as the proof that what I'm talking about happening three, five, ten, twenty years down the road is legitimate, all of a sudden, I've got some skin in the game. I've got some, I'm either, you're going to find out very quickly, I'm either blowing smoke or I'm actually delivering a message. And so Jesus does not, uh, in his humility, he doesn't elevate himself above the rules. He doesn't say, no, 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 you just got to trust me on this one. Jesus makes these declarations, then he backs them up. He says, I'm the light. Let's demonstrate it. I'm going to open this man's eyes so now he can see light. I'm the bread. In what context? In the context of, I just created bread for 5,000 men. And so what he's going to say here, Lazarus has died. Lazarus is in the grave. 
And Lazarus's sister, Martha, comes to Jesus when he comes to their house. And she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha, uh, I love Martha. Martha gets kind of a bad rap because she got in a bad mood at one point. But uh, Martha is just a fantastic person in the scriptures. She says, God, you did not do what I hoped you would do. I had an expectation of how you would perform, and you did not live up to my expectation. But I recognize that right now, whatever you ask God to do, he's going to do. She says, God, I do not understand what you're doing, but I recognize that you are still in charge here. And that's a, that's a powerful place of humility. Because sooner or later, every one of us is going to have a situation where God doesn't meet our expectations. And at that point, we can either decide that God is unfair or we can decide that we had the wrong expectations. And Martha here is saying, okay, this is not what I was shooting for. So you're going to have to help me understand because I must have somehow been shooting for the wrong thing. And Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, I know. That's a, that's a, that's a long-term prophecy. I know there's going to be an end of the world someday and all the souls will rise again. Great. I'm still grieving the fact that my brother just died. And Jesus says in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Yes, you're right. He will rise again at the end. But I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm here to bring life. And if you have that life, if you have, you know, kind of in the same way that when he's talking about being the bread of life, he's going deeper and beyond physical bread. When he's talking about life here. He's going deeper and beyond physical life. So he is talking about it in this context. You know, he's, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus will physically come back to life here. But he's saying, you understand, I'm so much more than just life. I'm more, so much more than just existence, right? So many people in our world are alive, but they're not really living, right? Uh, somebody, some smart guy once said, uh, many people die at the age of 25 and don't get buried until they're 75. And that's really true. A lot of people just exist for decades at a time. And, and there's no real meaning, there's no purpose. And Jesus is saying, you've got to understand, yes, I am the giver of physical life. But we're talking about something way bigger and way deeper than that. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha, to her credit, says, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, why was this book written? So that we'd believe that Jesus was, is the Christ, the Son of God. And Martha here gives a declaration of, hey, I don't necessarily fully understand every intricacy of the details, but I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so what does Jesus do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus comes back to a physical life. But understand Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the giver of life. Colossians says that by him everything is held together. There are not two atoms that are joined together in a molecule anywhere in this universe apart from the power of God, apart from the fact that Jesus Christ is holding them together. So if you are existing right now, that's because of Jesus Christ. But if you're living 
or if you want to live in any kind of real, meaningful, purposeful way, that's only going to happen through Jesus Christ. So uh, from there, he goes on to chapter 14, verse 6. Chapter 14, verse 6, again, let's put it in context. We're at the Last Supper. The Last Supper, at this point, Judas has already left to try and go and betray Christ. And Jesus, once Judas leaves, just starts laying into the disciples for three, for four chapters, 14, 15, 16, 17. They're just Jesus going nonstop. And there's almost a sense in John of, okay, Judas left. He had, Jesus gives him plenty of opportunities to repent before that moment. But once Judas leaves, there's a sense of, I'm on a time crunch. We have got a, I have got a countdown until the crucifixion. And I've got a very limited time window with you guys, so let's make this count. And so those four chapters in John are incredibly powerful. And like I said, we're not going to unpack them all tonight. But you owe it to yourself. And you owe it as a response, as a response to the goodness of God to preserve it for you. You owe it to yourself to go back and read them and unpack them. And so in John chapter 14, he's talking about uh, Judas has left. He's talking about that he's going to be glorified here in a bit. And in 14 verse 1, he says, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. So Jesus says, all right, guys, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my Father's house. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And incidentally, just bear in mind, God created this world in seven days and it's been falling apart for the last 6,000 years. He's spent 2,000 years preparing a place for us in heaven. I have no idea what that's going to be like, but I expect it's going to be pretty phenomenal. Um, Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And this is where uh, Jesus was sinless, but you could very much picture Jesus doing like, you know, Okay, guys. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I'll come again. And you know where I'm going. Where's he going? His Father's house, right? One, two. And Thomas says, so, uh... Sorry, I was, I was checking a text message. Where are you going again? And, and, and how, if we don't know where you're going, how do we know the way? Well, short answer is he should have known exactly where he was going because he should have been paying attention. But in verse 6 then, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is saying, okay, Thomas. He said it a lot more graciously than I would have. But he said, Thomas. Thomas says, okay, where are you going and how do we even know the way? Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And those are all three incredibly important because he says, I'm the way, I am the path and I'm the truth. I'm not just a path, I'm the right path. I am the path and I'm also the life. Do you realize he could have said, I'm the way, the truth and the death? God has every right to say, Jesus is the only way and that would be Correct. He could say, Jesus is the only way and 
you're a sinner, and that would be the truth. And he could say, Jesus is the only way, and you're a sinner, and frankly, you've never done anything to deserve the goodness of God. So you are doomed to hell. That would have been God's right and prerogative, had he so chosen. Because none of us deserve the grace of God. But what he chose instead was to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say I'm a way and a truth and a life. I'm not one of many paths. You know, it's not we're all going up the mountain of truth and Jesus is one route and we're all just sort of following our own inner light. No, no, he says I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one will come to the Father. No one will enter into the presence of God in eternity apart through Jesus Christ. He says, I am your one and only option. And this is where, you know, people want to say that all religions are the same. They're not. They're not. There, there is no such thing, you know, the person who puts the coexist bumper sticker on their car, which usually means they don't believe any of the religions that they're telling us to all to coexist with. Uh, the person who puts that on does not understand that the Bible makes absolute truth claims. It is impossible for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, and for Buddhism to also offer a path to spiritual enlightenment. It's impossible for Jesus to be the way, the truth, and the life, and then to have uh, a belief system like either the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses, where Jesus is either Michael or he's the older brother of Lucifer, and he really is like a man who became God, and we can become God too. No, 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 no. We're not... We, we cannot blend the truth claims of Scripture with the truth claims of any other uh, religious text because they cannot both be true. We live in an either-or universe, right? And there are people who want to say, no, it's a both-and, right? You can have Jesus and Buddha. You can have Jesus and whatever else. We believe in inclusivity to which you can say, so what you're saying is I can either believe in inclusivity or I can believe in exclusive truth claims. Because no matter how you slice it, we still live in an either-or universe. There is absolute truth, and Jesus is claiming it right here. He's saying there's absolute truth, and I have got the corner on the market. And then uh, chapter 15, the last one for tonight, the seventh. Chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Chapter 15, 1 through 11, he gives us uh, a parable kind of a metaphor more than a parable, of our relationship with him. He says, I'm the vine, and you guys are the branches. My father's the vine dresser. And then he proceeds to unpack that, and he says, basically, here's the deal. If you want to bear fruit, here's what you're going to have to do. Stay connected to the vine. That's it. I mean, if you guys have an orchard, or you have grapes, or you have any kind of perennial that you prune, you understand this. The way a branch bears fruit is just to stay connected well, right? A branch gets disconnected, a branch gets chewed off or broken off or cut off. What's it do? It dies. It dies. What do you do with it? You burn it. Because it's why. It's worthless. Once a branch is cut off and dies, it does nothing. It is dead. But if that same branch stays connected to the vine or to the tree, it will bear fruit in season. And so Jesus is saying here, look, verse 4. Uh, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Look, guys, he's saying, 
You want to bear fruit, that's great. All you got to do is just abide with me. You got to stay in fellowship with me and you'll bear fruit. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How much do you do apart from the Lord? Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away and dries up. Verse 7, uh, no, not verse 7. Where are we going? Verse 2. Let's just jump back to verse 2. I like verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he, that's God the Father, prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So how do you bear fruit in Christian life? You abide. Why do you abide? Because it's the only way you stay alive. What happens if you abide and if you bear fruit? You'll get pruned. So how do you tell if you're getting pruned or if you're getting cut off? Well, if you're getting pruned, it's because you're bearing fruit. And if you're still connected to the vine, if you're still abiding in Christ, then you're not disconnected. If you're still fellowshipping with Christ, you're connected to the vine. Right? And you'll bear fruit. And sometimes, you know, in our Christian life, uh, bearing fruit is a pain. It really can feel like, I'm trying to do everything right. I'm trying to abide. I'm trying to do all this great stuff. And God is pruning an awful lot. But I do not see any fruit coming out right now. Well, you know, fruit comes in its own time. Orchards do not operate on a production time clock. Right? No orchard is ever on a 12-hour shift. Orchards don't work second shift. They just bear fruit in time. And, you know, some of us uh, have the privilege of being bamboo stalks for the Lord, right? It's just every day there's new leaves and new shoots and new growth and we're just shooting up. Some of us are more like oak trees. An oak tree puts out a crop of acorns about every 10 years. And so sometimes we kind of sit there and it's like, well, yeah. So, eight years in, here we go, right? Sometimes uh, we're not going to necessarily feel like we're bearing fruit, but we're not the judge of it, Right? What's the branch's job? If the branch, the branch is not responsible for how much fruit it bears. That's between the amount of nutrients coming through the vine and the amount of pruning that the vine dresser does. So the amount of fruit you bear in your life is not your responsibility. It's con- directly connected, though, to how connected you are to the Lord. So those are the seven I am statements. Now, in chapter 20, verse 22... Ah, verse 21. This is after Jesus has been crucified. After he took the punishment for all of our sins, after he bore the wrath of God that all of us deserve, after he died and was in the ground for three days and rose from the dead. And during that time, the disciples totally failed to recognize every single one of these I am statements that Jesus made. They failed to grasp that, you know, hey, he's the resurrection and the life. That means we don't understand it right now, but there's life coming. They failed. To, they basically missed all of it until Jesus rose from the dead. And then they realized, hold on a second. Let's recalibrate for a second because we did not see that coming. So in verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, this is after he's appeared to them now. And he says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the disciples have missed three and a half years of the teaching of Jesus. They totally blew it. They failed to stand by him when he was crucified. They failed to, you know, to testify for him. They, just, they fled in self-preservation. And Jesus comes back to them after he's resurrected. And he says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. 
He doesn't say, here's what we're going to do because you failed. He says, here's what we're going to do. The Father sent me. And now, I'm going to pass that on. I'm going to send you. And they breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Which is, incidentally, a little bit of a teaser for next week. So come next week and we'll talk about receiving the Holy Spirit. But they messed up. They failed to grasp the I Am statements of God. Now, why was John written? It was written, chapter 20, so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in that believing, we'll have life in his name. In that believing, we'll abide in the vine and bear fruit. Okay? So here's the deal. In a room like this, you know, if, if, uh, if we were more of an altar call church, this would be like the perfect segue into... Let's get the band back up on stage. Let's offer an invitation. If you haven't believed for salvation or for membership, come on up and let's get this taken care of. And so, and that's great, all right? So if you are sitting here tonight and you have not asked the Lord to, to transform your heart, maybe you've had a head knowledge that he's the Christ, but you've never had that true heart knowledge, then get saved. Look to the person next to you after we're done and tell them you need to get right with God and they'll pray with you and... Get that taken care of. Okay, but I know the majority of us in the room, the vast majority of us in the room are already believers. And there's a temptation when we read these to be like, yeah, that's great. You know, like Jesus is kind of basic level Christianity, right? Like Jesus came to earth. He died for my sins. He rose again. I'm saved. I get to go to heaven. Great. Now I need a little more day-to-day stuff, Right? And that, that can be a real temptation for us, especially if you've grown up in the church, you've grown up familiar with the Word of God. And so if that's where we're at, we need to back up and say, wait, what is the depth of these statements? Because if that's where we're at, then truthfully what that means is we have missed the reality of what these are. We've missed the incredible, powerful truth that these are. Okay? We have missed what it means that Jesus is the light that he is the resurrection and the life and the bread of life, that he's the door, that he's the good shepherd. We've missed all that. If Jesus is our basic introduction to Christianity and from there we need to pursue something else, then we're missing the whole point. So go back in your own heart and consider, what do these mean? How should these be impacting my life? Because these should be rocking our world on a daily basis, right? We should be craving deeper fellowship with Jesus at the same intensity that we crave a snack, right? At a much greater intensity, actually, but that's a pretty good starting point. If I craved the Lord on the same basis that I regularly, regularly crave putting something in my mouth, I would have a ton more fellowship with the Lord than I do, right? And so don't miss, you know, it, it can be tempting because we've grown, a lot of us have grown up reading the book of John, you know, if you've been going through the reading in a year plan where we've been going, you know, you've read John a handful of times, like, yep, pretty good. We, we got it. We covered the miracles, covered some of the teachings. No, 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 no. We're talking about who Jesus Christ is. We're talking about the fact that he was sent to us because we could not ascend. We could not absorb any righteousness on our own by any of our own actions. And so God, in his grace, came. He was sent to us. Jesus came down from heaven to take on the form of a man, to live and die, to live a sinless life, an absolutely perfect sinless life, die and raise from the dead to pay for all of our sins. That should blow our minds. 
perpetually. That should never get old in our hearts, right? That should transform us. And so this book was written so that we'd believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So if we've had that head knowledge and we need to get transformed to a heart knowledge, the disciples messed it up too. The disciples blew it. And Jesus said, so what? I'm sending you out. Go. Receive the Holy Spirit and go. And so if we've messed it up, if we've failed to absorb the the depth of the Gospel of John, the depth of the, the whole Scripture, then what do we do? Receive the Holy Spirit and go. Right? He's sending us. And we should be living with a transformed life. Because Jesus came, he says, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. Jesus didn't come so we could exist. He didn't come to give us some sort of social gospel so the world could be a nicer place to go to hell from. He came to bring us eternal life, very much so, but also a depth of life now that should be uh, just really beyond what any of us can imagine. We have fellowship with God himself by the Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus Christ. That's why John wrote his book. He wanted us to not forget that. So don't forget it. Next week we're going to be in Acts. Next week we're going to get to watch the disciples apply what Jesus did in the book of John. Right? So we're going to get to watch an example of, hey, here's how we do it. Now let's go do it. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth of it. We pray that that we would have life through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for all that, all that was done for us, for the grace of God reaching down to pluck us out of our sinfulness, not because of anything we've done, but because of who you are and because of the love that you have for us. So Lord, help us to respond to that grace. Help us to respond to that truth, to let our hearts be impacted, to let our lives be transformed, to let our minds be renewed by who you are. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.